listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. This is the word of the Lord. So the other day I was listening to a friend describe his process for learning to use a new tool uh, that he'd purchased. This is a guy who is adept at using all sorts of tools, so normally he just kind of figures it out. But this is a particularly complicated one, and it required like math and figuring stuff out, lining things up. So he decided, I'll just read the instruction manual first, right? So you get in the instruction manual, start reading it, and it's like, this does not make any sense at all. I have no idea. I mean, they're trying to describe using just words how to overlay multiple boards in a particular pattern so that a router can cut dovetails. So it's this complicated joinery thing. And it's like, this just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So he just abandoned it and went back to the tool. He's like, I'm going to just try to figure it out. Start clamping things into place and cutting things. I'm like, well, that didn't work. And then try something else. And that didn't work either. And clamping it. Eventually, it still didn't work. So we went back to the instruction manual. I was like, oh, now it makes sense, right? Because the first time you read it, you're like, well, it just doesn't make that much sense. So you get, then you get your hands on the actual thing and you try it and then you come back to the instruction manual again. And you're like, now it makes sense. I see what they're saying about like the second clamp and you can't clamp down the second one before the first one. And you know, it's okay. So now it works. Sometimes you have to get your kind of hands on something in order to understand the, the instructions for how to do it. You got to try to do it. And then the instructions for how to do it start to make sense. In the, the early church, the way that the church read the Sermon on the Mount for the first couple hundred years of its history uh, was reading it like uh, an instruction manual or a discipleship manual, we would say. Uh, the kind of manual where you read it and you're like, that does not make sense. I'm just going to try and go figure it out. And then you try to figure it out and then you come back and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense now. I see why what Jesus is saying here, like, make that, I should try that. That might make a difference. That might make things a little bit easier. First couple hundred years of Christianity, St. Augustine, for one, called the Sermon on the Mount uh, a perfect standard of the Christian life. Perfect in all the precepts by which the Christian life is shaped. If you keep going to it and then trying it and then coming back to it and then trying it and coming back to it again and again and again. We're starting a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, if you haven't picked that up already. Uh, We're calling it Foundations, Building a Kingdom Life, because we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount, these three chapters in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, over the next uh, 24 weeks building and setting the foundation for a kingdom life. Today, I'm going to focus us kind of in three sort of big ideas before we actually start to dig into the sermon as a whole. You'll actually probably come away from this sermon a little bit frustrated um, because I'm acting sort of like the, uh, the tour guide before the tour, uh, or the, the guide on the trail before you actually go hiking. Instead of saying, all right, let's hit the trail, it's like, okay, before we hit the trail, 
Like this, this was my mom's role in every family vacation. Before we get on the road, here's the things you need to know. <laughs> That's what we're doing this morning. This is like the, the sermon on the sermon on the mount or the instructions for how to use the instruction manual. It's just like we're stepping back a bit here because there's three, three big ideas I want to focus on before we start reading through the sermon itself bit by bit. First is there's some things we need to know before reading the sermon. Some things we need to know before reading the sermon, some assumptions that we, maybe there's some assumptions we bring to the sermon or some that we're lacking because we're not part of the original culture that first read this. So there's some things we need to wrap our minds around before reading the sermon. Second, of course, like any good hike or tour, there's some things you need to pay attention to while you're reading the sermon. Like a guide would tell you, and hey, when we get over this hill, you're going to look to the left and you'll see this. That's what we're going to do this morning is, all right, what do we need to pay attention to while we're reading this sermon? And lastly, okay, what do we need to try after you've read the thing? After you've gone to it and come back to it and come back to it again, what do you need to try in order to make what you're learning and reading, you know, make sense, live in the world? So before the sermon, what do we need to know? While we're reading it, what do we need to pay attention to? And after we read it, what do we need to try? What do we need to do with this? It's the Sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> so let's jump in. Uh, I'm going to start by tackling the whole big idea of what you need to know before reading the Sermon on the Mount. That's why we had like the world's shortest scripture reading this morning of just the very beginning of it. Seeing the crowds, Jesus goes up to the Mount. When he sat down, his disciples came and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, before I explain that, if you've been around faith in the last couple of weeks, you know, between Ash Wednesday and Easter, we've been reading, especially in the first few chapters of Matthew, Matthew's introduction to who Jesus is. Before we get to Jesus's actual ministry, what he said and taught and did himself, this is all the introduction to it that we've been reading the last couple of weeks, trying to find out, okay, what kind of a Messiah what kind of a son of God is this guy? What kind is he going to be? Where we left off in the reading before Easter had us just right up to the beginning of Jesus' ministry in chapter 4. And at this point in Matthew's telling of Jesus' story after this sort of theological introduction to who Jesus is, he then tells us, okay, now he begins the ministry and he starts the whole beginning of ministry with this big summary uh, phrase, this summary verse in chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus began to preach, and Matthew summarizes the entirety of Jesus' message in this one phrase, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you were to read Mark, Mark does the same kind of thing. He says at the very beginning, this is the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. This is what it's about. So here in Matthew 4, 17, here's what's going on. The beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is what it's about. Repent. Kingdom of heaven is coming. The next paragraph, he calls some disciples. The paragraph after that, he starts to go throughout Galilee. He's teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. And then Matthew kind of transitions us into chapter 5, into this big block of teaching that's 
5, 6, and 7 is teaching, and then 8 and 9 is like an example of that teaching, and 9 ends with Matthew telling us Jesus was going around teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This whole big section is about the gospel of the kingdom, what it means to repent, because the good news of the kingdom, the good news is that the kingdom is coming. So Matthew begins us with Jesus saying, all right, here's the summary statement. We're going to get some disciples around. We're going to get some crowds around. And then Jesus preaches. Where Matthew places the sermon in his narrative, he kind of steps us out of the storyline for a minute to say, if you're wondering what Jesus taught in all of verse 23 and 24 as he's going around everywhere and teaching and preaching and healing, this is kind of one big amalgamated sermon of what Jesus taught. This is the good news of the coming kingdom, or it's the first of five big teaching sections in Matthew's gospel. We're only focusing here on just the Sermon on the Mount. So, Jesus preaches. Matthew's giving us this sermon to show us what Jesus' message was all about. So, chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, there's crowds that have been following him from place to place. Seeing these crowds, he goes up on, it says in English, the mountain. It's probably up into the hill country is how we translate in other places. It's not like a, you know, big mountain like that. It's, It's kind of a just getting hillier, and he's going up into it. It's a common place to retreat to when you want to teach for an extended period of time. Some, uh, some theologians say, yeah, this whole sermon was probably delivered over the course of three or four days, primarily to the disciples. Uh, but the crowds were around. Now, in, in chapter 5, verse 1, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. It sort of implies that the crowds have been left behind. But by the time we get to the end of the sermon, at the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, we're like, oh, there were crowds there listening as well. So he's up on this, in this hill country, he's teaching his disciples, uh, disciples not meaning, you know, the 12. Matthew's only introduced us to four of them so far. He doesn't name all 12 until after the sermon. Uh, but this is, these are the people who are, they're not part of the crowd, just interested, uh, curious. They're the ones who are in and in close. I w- we want to teach. We, I want to hear what you're teaching. Okay, so... Jesus sees the crowds, he goes up into the hill country, and then he sits down as the formal posture of a teacher who's going to communicate his message to his disciples. In verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now, it's a bit of an awkward phrasing, I know there in in verse 2. It's awkward in Greek as well, and that's because it's more or less copying the Hebrew way of introducing when someone was about to teach and they're going to teach something that is like revelation from God. These are the words of God. The way it would be introduced, this is all throughout the Old Testament, is, and then he opened his mouth to teach them, saying. It's that Hebrew kind of idea of repeating the same, you know, he, he said what he was going to say and said it to him. It's kind of repeating that concept. Like, this is, okay, this is the word of God. What we're about to hear are the words from God. It's an intentional wording choice on Matthew's part, giving us this introduction to Jesus' teaching. Remember, the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, he's going to teach us wisdom, divinely directed speech. So as we get into this wisdom, this divinely directed speech, it's all in this context of what do you mean when you say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Well, here's what I mean. It's a three-chapter-long sermon. 
an explanation of what repentance towards God and His coming reign looks like. And it takes the form of instructions or exhortations how to live. It's an appeal to live in light of the coming kingdom. In other words, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're trying to live by what Jesus said, by what He taught, by how He lived, by what He kept saying that the kingdom is near, the kingdom is coming, then Matthew 5 through 7 is positioned for us as this is your manual for life. These are your instructions for living as a follower of Jesus in light of the coming kingdom. One author calls it a manifesto for life in the kingdom. This is Jesus' kingdom manifesto. It's an actual instruction manual for us with like goals and targets for us to hit on what it looks like to live in the kingdom or live in anticipation of the kingdom that's coming. That's what we got to know before we get into the sermon. This is Jesus' discipleship manual for us to live by and learn from. Now, while we're reading the sermon, so with that in the back of our minds, this is Jesus' discipleship manual. While we're reading the sermon, there's things we need to pay attention to or keep looking for because they show up over and over and over again. Basically, one major theme. Okay, I'm kind of lying. It's four major themes, that I, but I put it in one sentence, so I'm calling it one major theme. Uh, but I'm going to put it up on the screen because it's important. I want you to be able to write it down. The one major theme that keeps coming up over and over again is this, wise growth in whole person righteousness resulting in reward now and forever. Wise growth in whole person righteousness resulting in reward now and forever. If you're the kind of person who writes in your Bible, I would suggest jotting this in the margin next to the sermon or at the top of chapter 5 or somewhere where you'll see it as you read it because this is the theme that just keeps getting repeated, referenced, explained. We keep being exhorted to wise growth in whole person righteousness. Now, I packed a lot into that one sentence, so I want to take a few minutes to kind of unpack it a little bit, take it uh, phrase by phrase. Uh, First, what I'm saying up there, wise growth, those two words, in those two words, I'm trying to capture the fact that in the Sermon on the Mount, we have two different moral traditions or ways of thinking about what it means to be a, a good person or to find human flourishing. We have these two different ways of thinking kind of coming together and meshing a bit. We'll definitely talk about that more in the next couple weeks, so I won't spend a ton of time here except to summarize. Uh, On the one hand, we have a a Jewish wisdom tradition that Jesus is clearly centered in and grounded in. Matthew is presenting Jesus as a sage, as a teacher in the tradition of Jewish wisdom uh, teaching. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, there's parts that sound a lot like Proverbs that, that echo intentionally the words of the Psalms that borrow the same vocabulary and concepts and categories as other wisdom literature popular at the time, but that, that's not necessarily included in our scriptures. In Jewish wisdom literature, the overall, like the overarching theme of wisdom literature is, hey, we're in a story with a covenant God, the God who made the world and then when it fell, promised to recreate and restore and redeem that world. 
that were waiting for that future kingdom to come, for heaven to come back to earth. But while we wait, while we're waiting for that future state to come in which we will have perfect happiness, while we're waiting for that, wise obedience now gives us a taste of what the future life in the kingdom will be. Okay, so wise obedience to God's will and God's words now is like the appetizer or the hors d'oeuvres before the feast. It's a taste. It's a small way of experiencing what will become full and fully fledged in the future. So while we wait for that to come, we live now in wise obedience so we can get a little taste of what's coming. Not just wait for it to show up and do nothing, but anticipate it. Live in light of how God is going to turn everything right side up and make everything whole again. So Jesus is continually, continuing solidly in that uh, in that tradition, he begins his public ministry by painting a picture of what, a, of what the state of true, God-oriented, human flourishing, healthy human living looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we'll get into all of those more next week. But Matthew starts Jesus solidly. I shouldn't say he starts Jesus. He, Jesus is solidly a wisdom teacher in the Jewish tradition. But at the same time, the, those Jewish concepts are being uh, explained and portrayed through Greek categories and language. There's the Jewish wisdom tradition kind of being spoken through the language of the Greek virtue tradition. You guys still with me? I asked that first hour and somebody laughed. <laughs> So let me see if I can make this a little clearer. Uh, we have the, the moral tradition of, of the Jewish wisdom, and we have the moral tradition of Greek virtue. Now, all of Greek philosophy in the early years was about answering one main question, uh, how do I find happiness? Now, happiness didn't just mean how do I feel good about myself. The way we would translate the word now is probably closer to human flourishing. How do I find flourishing or blessedness or shalom or happiness, whatever word you want to use to describe it? How do I find it? How do I get it? And how do I sustain it? I don't want to just experience it momentarily and then have it gone. Like, how do I live consistently in a state of flourishing? And, and the Greek answer to that question was virtue. To flourish... To, to grow vigorously in a healthy way that is unique to being a human being required growth in virtue. And the key insight from the, the Greek tradition is that you cannot be virtuous on accident. Okay, you can't be accidentally good. That's not enough. It needs to be part of who you are, the whole of who you are, not just something you happen to be able to do because your circumstances are good. Right, a few years back, Jenna and I went, my wife Jenna and I went skeet shooting with some of her family, and I did my best to shoot the skeet, and I kept on missing. It's a lot easier when it goes straight away from you than when it goes like that. That is really hard. Uh, anyway, I missed five out of five, and then it was Jenna's turn, and so she grabs the shotgun and says, what do I say? And someone says, pull, and the thing goes flying, and she's just like, 
whips the shotgun up, does a safety squint, pulls the trigger, and then goes, where'd it go? Did I hit it? She nailed it, obliterated it, direct shot right out of the sky. Now, you can't call either of us marksmen or sharpshooters because I didn't hit anything and she didn't hit anything on purpose. Right? The insight from the Greek tradition is that for virtue to be really virtuous, you not only have to hit the target, but you have to mean to. It has to come from skilled living, not just an accidental, like you, you happen to be pointing your shotgun in the, the right direction. Now I'm going to stop this metaphor because it's getting a little too uh, projectile-y. Uh, virtue requires time. It requires growth in time. It requires practice. It requires thousands of more rounds on my part trying to hit before I could actually be called a sharpshooter. Uh, same for anyone else who tries to pick up a skill. The skill of wise living works the same way. It takes time to develop and grow. And ideally, if you had some sort of sage or a wise leader who lived it out themselves and could show you what it looked like, that's a huge help. Because then you know what you're aiming at. You know what kind of life you're trying to grow in. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, we find both the Jewish wisdom tradition that human flourishing, who we are supposed to be, is only found when it is centered on God. We find that explained using the vocabulary and the, and the context, the, uh, the concepts from the Greco-Roman virtue tradition. And the biggest overlap between the two is this same commitment to whole person virtue, or we would say whole person righteousness. It requires all of you. Throughout the sermon, we find statements like, blessed are the pure in heart, or beware of practicing your righteousness before others to be seen by them. It's wrong motivation. Or don't act like the hypocrites. Now, in Matthew, the hypocrites aren't the people who say one thing and do something else. They're the people who say one thing, do it, and do it for entirely the wrong reasons, to be seen or other reasons like that. So don't be like the hypocrites. And we get statements like, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But I mean, all of these and more, the sermon is just rife with it, they all point us towards this emphasis on whole person righteousness. Our righteousness cannot be accidental or circumstantial. It has to come from a heart-deep, whole-person dedication to Jesus' teachings and to following His way of life. In fact, most scholars point out that when you get to the ideas of holiness and perfection in the Sermon on the Mount, especially Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You need to think of perfections in terms of singular devotion or wholehearted orientation towards God. It's not about moral perfection of never doing anything wrong. It's about being wholly oriented towards God, and every time you come off of that path, coming back to it. That's what it means. Be wholly oriented around God even as God your Father is wholly oriented around Himself. There's so much more in that verse. I can't wait to unpack it with you all uh, in the future. Uh, mark your calendars for July 17th. That's when we're hitting that verse. 
So this, this sermon, this, is, this point of whole person righteousness, this is about living out the will of God and the words of God in our daily lives, bringing our internal motivations and our external actions both into alignment with the reality that the kingdom is coming, that heaven is forcing its way back into earth, that the kingdom of God is coming in Jesus and will ultimately one day fully, finally come. When we live this way, we find ourselves then in the state which is most conducive to flourishing as a human being, as God, uh, as God uniquely intended us to be. This is like planting your, your spring tomatoes in, in, in garden soil that is, that is rich, that is full of nutrients, that is well-drained. That's, that's where we find ourselves rather than the hard-packed clay that doesn't grow anything. When we live this whole person righteousness, we find ourselves in this context where flourishing happens the way God intended. Are you with me? Now, we could stop right there and we wouldn't be wrong. The sermon is about wise growth and whole person righteousness. And the second half of that sentence is a little, we feel a little weird about it. It's a little difficult to wrap our minds around. What do you mean by resulting in reward? Like you're going to get a reward for living correctly? And the answer is yes. In the Jewish wisdom tradition, the righteous person expects a reward for righteous living. Not like a mercenary. Not like I'll do this thing and get a paycheck, but a reward that is the natural outgrowth, the natural, uh, it's intrinsic to the activity itself. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a, a reward or a, you know, a wage sometimes it use or a treasure that is appropriate to how you're growing. It's, it's the natural outworking of God's justice and God's design. You could think of it like an athlete. If an athlete wants to set a personal best or they want to, um, they want to lift more, they want to run faster, they want to jump higher, whatever, if you, if you saw an athlete who lifted weights regularly and they did their interval training and they stuck to a healthy diet and they stayed on their sleep regimen, you wouldn't look at them and go, well, yeah, but you're, you're doing all those things for like self-interested reasons, right? I mean, you're only working out because you want to get better at what you do. And you look at me and say, well, that obviously makes sense because the goal isn't to do the workout. The goal is when you do all of that, you become better able to flourish as an athlete. You're better able to perform, to do what you're trying to do in a competition environment. It's the same with a, a baker, a home baker who practices recipe after recipe after recipe or practices the same one multiple times to the point where they don't need the recipe anymore. The point isn't to follow the recipe, the point is to bake bread. And if you get to the point where you don't need the recipe, that's good. That's the reward for doing the hard work of paying attention to the recipe. You can think about it in the same way with our English classes. We don't provide English classes so that we can teach people English. We provide English classes for people that God wants to flourish in this community and they need to know English to do it. So we teach English, but it's not about teaching English, it's about flourishing where they are and being able to grow as God intended. Right? It's the same emphasis in the sermon. Okay? It's not wrong to commit to the hard work of whole person righteousness because you want the reward. 
because the reward is communion with God and flourishing in a relationship with Him. Like, that's what we're made for. That's what we're designed for, and wise growth and whole person righteousness is the way we begin to taste that now before we get to fully experience it one day in the future when the kingdom of heaven comes back to earth. Jesus is saying, look, if you want to start to taste the happiness you're made for, this is what to do. This is how to live. A huge part of the exhortation to righteousness in the sermon is an appeal to self-interest, saying, do you want to be happy? This is how you do that. Do you want your life to flourish? This is how you do it. And there's definitely parts of this sermon where we look at it and go, I'm not sure I buy it. That does not sound like the way to flourishing to me or the happiness that I think I want. And Jesus says, you know, I actually have a better idea of what the happiness you think you want really is. Try this. I think you'll find it. For those of us who follow Jesus, who who call ourselves disciples of Jesus, this is how we're called to live in order to find the, the happiness or the blessedness or the shalom that God designed us to have in relationship with Him. Now, we get a taste of it now and the fullness of it forever. That's why I tacked on at the very end there. It results in reward both now and forever. There's there's an aspect of this reward that is right now present in our lives in this life, but there's an even greater aspect of the reward that is future in the coming kingdom. But we get to taste that wholeness and flourishing now. Now, the emphasis on the kingdom throughout the sermon actually brings us back full circle to the beginning of this big main theme, to the idea of wise growth. Because in the time of Jesus' ministry, the Jewish people and the Greek people both are looking for an ideal king, a philosopher king, depending on which one you're, which culture you're in, a wise king who lived virtuously or lived righteously, lived so perfectly that that king himself became a living embodiment of what it meant to live well. And by living well, all of his subjects, everybody subject to his rule and his reign would find blessing or peace or shalom or flourishing. See, in the way that that Matthew arranges the sermon in the the Greek vocabulary that he's choosing uh, to use to translate Jesus' Aramaic and his Hebrew teaching, Matthew is showing us over and over in the sermon, weaving these two traditions together and showing Jesus is that king who fulfills the expectations of both of these wisdom traditions, showing us what it means to live a life of human flourishing in relationship with God. So as we read this sermon together over the next six months, uh, as you read it yourself, pay attention to that big idea. You're going to see it repeated and hinted at and explained and drawn out and alluded to all the way through the whole sermon. This sermon is about what is wise growth in whole person person righteousness? How does it result in a reward now and forever? So while we're on this hike... This is what we're looking for. Now, in the time I don't have left, let me 
bring this to a conclusion. I know some of you are itching to get out on the trail. You're like, stop telling me about the hike. Let's just hike this thing, right? Stop, stop giving me the rules for the game. Let's just play the game. Uh, we're about to get there. Starting next week, we're going to jump right into the Beatitudes and tackle those uh, basically first 11 verses of Jesus' sermon. But before we go, we got to know, what is this sermon we're reading? It's Jesus' discipleship manual. It's his manifesto for kingdom living. It's got ideals in it that we may never hit, but that's the direction we're going. We're going to keep aiming in that direction. And while we're on this hike, while we're reading this sermon together, we need to keep paying, paying attention to this key theme, this wise growth and whole person righteousness. This is what Jesus is calling to because it results in reward now and forever as we get to taste the flourishing he has for us. Now, third big idea I said I'd hit is how do you live out this sermon? You know, this is what you need to know before you read it and what you need to pay attention to while you're reading it. Well, how, what do you do after you read it when you're going home? Well, what's next? What do you need to try? I don't want us to try to follow the sermon specifically. I know that sounds like I'm contradicting myself. I don't want you to try to follow the sermon. I want you to focus on following the one who preached the sermon. You know, Augustine called this a perfect standard for the Christian life. It is also the perfect model of Christ's life. This is how we lived. And in fact, if we jump ahead to the end of the sermon, to chapter 7, the last couple of verses, uh, Matthew puts his voice back in in verse 28 and, and tells us what happened next in the narrative. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like someone who had authority and not like the scribes that they were used to hearing. They were absolutely floored by Jesus' call to live a wise life of whole person righteousness. And they were floored because it wasn't just more general moral teaching. He said that life is centered exactly and explicitly on Him. The life of wise growth in whole person righteousness is centered on Jesus. This is a brand new thought in the history of both of these traditions. Because in this sermon, Jesus is calling us to whole person discipleship. And that's a tough call. That is a tough, tough call, I, I, especially as we can start reading this thing and we're reading about stuff that we really enjoy, like judging others. We're going to read some of these things and go, oh my, what is he asking me to do here? No, I, that is not how you find happiness. Okay, Jesus, I'll give you 90%, but I want to keep back a little bit for myself, or maybe 95%, but, but this part is me. And Jesus saying, no, you need to be wholly oriented toward God, all of you, not just part of you. Now, nobody has the right to tell you that you need to be wholly focused, oriented to, and built on themselves 
that person. No one has the right to tell you to wholly orient your life on him unless, unless he has already given the whole of himself for you. Jesus is not calling us to give any more of ourselves than he gave first on our behalf. You know the rest of the story. You know that this is just the first of five teachings. This is just the first of five big blocks of examples, and all of it points ultimately and leads directly to the cross, where Jesus says, you want to know what whole person, all of life, orientation towards God looks like? This is it. And because he gave the whole of himself, he can ask the whole of ourselves from us. So, read this sermon. Follow the one who preached it. Try to live by what he says, by watching what he did. Come back to it again and again and again. And as we do, we'll start to experience a little bit more the the human flourishing that God designed us to experience in relationship with him. Oh, just a taste of it now. But it is so full already. What must not the fullness really be when we are finally and fully in communion with him? Pray with me. Father, you call us to be completely and wholly oriented around following you. And Father, that is, we admit and we confess, it is such a difficult call. We strive for flawlessness because we feel that is what you want. You're calling us to be, to be blameless, to when we fail, come back to you, when we drift, to be reoriented to you. I pray that in our reading of this sermon and our following of the one who preached the sermon, that we would find in you, in him, in the words that he spoke, in the way that he lived, we would find the happiness, uh, the integrity of, of, of whole person, the, the flourishing, the, the shalom, the blessedness, the whatever word we use to describe it, that we would find it finally. In you, and that the taste that we get of it in you would fuel us until you come again in glory and bring heaven back to earth when your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.